Good morning. Well, I want to mention three things before we enter into our topic this morning. First of all, I like the name Abide. That is great. That's great. First time I saw WCRF, I thought it was a radio station. Uh, Abide is fantastic. And no, nobody told me that name before last night when I spoke about Abide for quite a while from John 15. So um, I've already given you a background to your name before I knew it or you knew it. (laughs) Second, at a youth camp like this, oh, by the way, um, I want you to contact our young people in Michigan. We want to participate in this. Uh, We have a youth camp, actually. It's about 120 to 140 young people. It's it's, uh, like ages 15 to 22, 23, um, about half an hour away from our church. And we get young people from Canada, a lot from Ontario and uh, New Jersey and Iowa and so on. But I think we'd be really interested in talking about different ways to, to plug in and um, also to have a, have a camp in Michigan, I, you know. So talk to our people. Because I think this, this idea, that you, the vision you just saw, has huge potential. Huge potential. And I like what you guys are doing, actually, in um, moving it up into the 20s and even into the 30s. Um, and particularly for, for young couples, because they often need a lot of guidance as well. And need fellowship. Sometimes they're forgotten in, in churches. And also uh, singles in, in the upper 20s and early 30s. Uh, often they feel like left out. And there's no uh, easy venue for them to meet other people. And, and to be fed spiritually at camps like this. So I'm learning from you as I watch you as well. And I, I think you're, you've got a great vision. I think you should all be praying that the Lord will bring that vision to pass. And that there would be a great networking going on of conservative, godly, reformed uh, young people and young adults around the nation. That'd be fantastic. So that's point one. Uh, Point two is at 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 a camp like this, it's very important to make it successful that you don't just, I mean, do you do have your special friends, but don't just hang out with the same people all the time. Get get to know get to know new people. And you'll be surprised how, how rewarding it is. Uh, we just came to breakfast, my wife and I, and uh, came around the corner. And the first people that were sitting there were Peter and Jennifer. I hope you don't mind if I say this. And uh, they're sitting here. They don't know anyone here. They just came because it sounded interesting to them. And, and uh, they're pretty new converts. And we had the most wonderful talk. I feel like I've known them for years already after one meal. And, and God wonderfully, wonderfully converted them. So get to know each other. And I think that's one of the beautiful things that my wife and I find when we go to conferences around the world. We always come back richer than when we, than when we came. Because we get to, and I always have the habit of asking people, how would God convert you? And get them to open up. And God's grace is amazing. Not just in Peter and Jennifer's life, but in, in your lives as well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. And uh, not everybody has an astonishing conversion story, of course, but everybody who abides in Christ 
has something to say about God's grace. So get to know each other. That's, that's great. And the third thing I wanted to say was uh, I wanted to just give you a little outline of where we're going, as I promised last night. So the, the whole theme that I was asked to speak on really by Joel was, Joel Weaver, was union with Christ and Christian unity. And what I'm doing is I'm kind of throwing into the mix as well because as I studied union with Christ and Christian unity, I discovered that you can hardly talk about these things without talking about the need for holiness at the same time since that binds people together in Christ. So I'm just adding the word holiness to the title. Um, Union with Christ, Christian unity, and holiness. Now, five talks. So last night we looked at experiencing sacred union with Christ and the holiness that ensues from it. This morning, I'm doing something a little different, understanding biblical and unbiblical unity. And Pastor Weaver especially wanted me to focus on this topic. And I chose to do it from a historical figure, a Puritan, who wrote a great deal about it. And you'll hear about that in a moment. So this is the only one of the five addresses that's a little bit more historical in nature. And I hope, I, hope you, I hope you like it and appreciate Anthony Burgess's uh, deep thinking about where unity should take a church or a Christian, but also the dangers of unity when you unite where there really are essential differences. So I'm going to flesh that out this morning. And then the last three talks are all going to be very, very practical because now we've laid the foundation in the first two for the theme. So tonight we're going to look at how do you fight worldliness in your own life through this union with Christ? What are some practical takeaways in the Bible to help you say no to worldliness and yes to who you really are if you're united with Christ? And then tomorrow morning, Lord's Day morning, we're going to look at how do you cope with afflictions in life? by looking at this union with Christ, by your relationship with Christ. Specifically, what difference does it make that you are a Christian and are in Christ when you cope with affliction? Why is coping with affliction so very different for a Christian and a non-Christian? And how can you keep your bearings and not lose it when you get sorely afflicted? How do you keep focused on Jesus? And then tomorrow evening, we're going to be talking about the ultimate unity of heaven, where our union with Christ, well, is utopian marriage. And out of that utopian marriage, we will have perfect unity with every single inhabitant of heaven, because heaven is a complete world of love, pure love. Christ-centered love. So what we're doing is we're addressing major areas of life, and at the end I'm going to take you, by the grace of God, to the vestibule of heaven, uh, looking at the ultimate unity in glory of all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, let's read for this session from John 17, John 17. 
going to read verses 17 through 24. John 17, 17 through 24. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. This is Jesus speaking in his high priestly prayer. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me from before the foundation of the world. Let's pray. Gracious God, as we address this very important subject of the unity of the church and the unity of believers with one another, and also those occasions when disunity is actually most appropriate in this fallen world, we pray for wisdom to speak the mind of Christ in John 17. And as we follow the thinking patterns on this theme uh, by uh, Anthony Burgess, we pray, Lord, that he may throw much light on this subject for us and that we might follow him insofar as he follows the Word of God. Uh, Do bless this talk and let it give us insights that perhaps we've never really had or resolve issues that we've never thoroughly thought through, but do grant us to be model Christians in establishing unity where there are non-essential differences with other Christians, but also, Lord, not to go uh, too far in that kind of establishing of false unity, the unity of so much of ecumenicism in our day. So give us balance here, give us boundaries here, give us wisdom here. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there's a lot of talk, as I'm sure you know, about church unity today. In contemporary discussions, uh, plans for uniting churches can be as varied as the voices that tout them, some biblical, some merely pragmatic, some simply unchristian. So while we ought to affirm the underlying goal in all such trends, which is real unity, we also ought to proceed with caution and ask about the methods, the intentions involved. 
At the liberal extreme, we find people seeking unity through interfaith agreements, calling for Muslims, Christians, Buddhists, and Jews to confess the same God, for example, which is hopeless unity because there's fundamental disunity. Then there's the ecumenical fervor of our day, which seeks to unite branches of Christianity that are Christian in name only. But among Bible-believing people, we do find considerable hope in a growing number of conferences and gatherings where Christians are encouraged to major on the major issues and to discuss minor issues, ironically or or peacefully. Um, I participate in that a lot, speaking in different conferences, different countries around the world. It's a joy to see, for example, Baptists and Paedo-Baptists come together and have real, spiritual, Christ-centered unity, despite having a difference uh, on the issue of whether to baptize infants and, and a little bit on covenant theology. But we also find a dangerous move toward pragmatism and humanism today in attempts to foster church unity by blunting the edge of sound doctrine and renouncing well-defined positions in Christian church history that are biblical, all in the name of organizational unity and institutional enlargement. See, so many Christian movements today just want to unite with other groups so they can be bigger, but they don't understand that when you unite two groups that are fundamentally different, actually you don't have one group, you end up having three groups. Because you get the group that does unite and don't care about the differences, then you get people in group A that won't unite because they see the danger, and group B that won't unite because they see dangers from their perspective. So you're trying to bring two groups into one and you end up with three. So unity is often like It's like plucking fruit from a tree. If you pluck it too early, it doesn't work. The fruit is not tasty. It's not ripe. If you pluck it at the right time, where it just kind of falls off naturally because you've been fostering unity between two groups and it's ripe for unity. You see, then it's tasty. Then it works. Then it comes naturally. So unity is not something to force, but it's something to work at between groups that are are fairly close, uh, especially groups that are one on the essentials. And so every church denomination uh, has these different fellowships, for example, with other denominations. Uh, Our denomination, Heritage Reform, is at a level two fellowship, I believe, with the United Reformed, which I'm assuming most of you are. Um, We're at a level four fellowship, with the free reform. So we have more fellowship with them. Level five in our system is, uh, is full merging together. So level four, free reform ministers, for example, can be called by our churches, and we can call theirs, and vice, I mean vice versa, they can call ours, uh, without, without exams uh, of, of the ministers. So it's, there's a fluidity there. Not quite a denominational union, totally, but we work together in the seminary, for example, 
our board members uh, from both groups. You see, these kinds of unity that develop first at level one, then at level two, and, and then we go to NAPARC uh, every year, North American Presbyterian and Reformed Churches, NAPARC. That sounds like a radio station too, doesn't it? But we should probably rename that. But, but uh, that, that organization, you see, is really helpful because what we do as representatives of our denomination, we sit down at a table with, this year I think we're doing seven of the 14 denominations represented in NAPARC, and we spend an hour with each one of those seven talking about our differences and our similarities and seeing if we can grow a little bit in unity and in levels of fellowship and cross-fertilization. And, and you see, this is all in keeping with the goal of unity that Jesus sets out in, in John 17. I will, Father, that they all be one in me, even as thou and I are one. Now, there's a man named Anthony Burgess. He was a Puritan. Right, right now, he's actually become... I go through stages in life with the Puritans. He's become my number one favorite Puritan. I just, I just edited and printed his 145 sermons on John 17. It's about 1,100 pages, two volumes. And it's a masterpiece. And when he gets to these verses I just read to you, he has a long, long section on Christian unity. Probably about 200 pages. We have now extracted that from the major work that we published, and we have just published a paperback called Advancing Christian Unity. And in the paperback, we edited every sentence, so it reads like it was written yesterday. So that's a fantastic book to get if you're interested in the subject of advancing Christian unity. But I'm going to just give you, in about 30 minutes here, a digest, and then I'm going to make some applications. A digest of Burgess's thinking with, I'll sprinkle some of my own applications throughout it, as, as well. So the first question, of course, we need to ask is, why is this important? Why is church unity important? And uh, Burgess answers that question with clarity, with boldness, with a depth of understanding that comes from a life of scripture meditation and ministerial work on this very question. So I want to look at Burgess's thinking with you in, in four thoughts. First, his own lifelong labor for church unity. Second, his view of the marks of true unity. True unity. What are the real marks of true unity? Third, we're going to look at his remedies, or that is, his ways of achieving unity, so that unity can progress. And fourth, we're going to look at his thoughts on the attractiveness. Why True unity is so very attractive. All right, first, lifelong labor for church unity. Burgess's ministry was from 1630 to 1664. Those are his 34 years of active ministry. And during those years, we find him employing a twofold method for engaging the church in matters of unity. First, he labored outside the walls of his own parish we, in what we might call questions of uh, 
denominational unity or sometimes federational unity. So that he strove for widespread agreement in matters of doctrine and practice, even in groups, among groups he didn't really affiliate all that much with. Having studied throughout the 1620s at St. John's and Emmanuel Colleges in Cambridge, Burgess went on to serve as the pastor of Sutton Coldfield in Warwickshire, England, for 27 years, 1635 to 1662. And during the English Civil War, as Puritan ministers were mercilessly persecuted, Burgess had to flee to Coventry, where he became one of the chaplains to the parliamentary garrisons, serving alongside Richard Baxter and other famous Puritans. From there, he joined the Westminster Assembly in the 1640s to take part in drafting one of the most influential statements of Christian truth in all of church history, one of the greatest rallying cries for doctrinal unity ever published in the Reformation Church. Westminster Confessions, uh, Confession and the Standards are an important instance in which Burgess and his contemporaries engaged the churches of their day on the urgent matter of bringing together practical, historical, theological unity in far-reaching ways. And then in 1647, while the Westminster Standards were being written, there was another effort to promote more unity, which Burgess signed. It's called the Testimony of the London Presbyterian Ministers Against the Toleration of Heresy. Again, striving for doctrinal purity and unity in the churches by condemning heresy. So that's the first thing. Burgess's life, you see, shows that he really lived what he's writing about in these 145 sermons. Second, Burgess labored for unity also from the pulpit. And I'm referring here, of course, to these 145 sermons. He preached all these sermons, obviously, to his congregation from John 17, including those 15 or 20 sermons on church unity. And he said to his congregation, we need to follow Christ in this prayer of striving to be united with fellow believers. And he, he served as a model for it, both in his preaching, therefore, but also in his own intercessory prayer, because he would often bring into his prayers, his congregational prayers, the needs of Christians all around the world. And you see, that's a beautiful thing to do. I'll never forget staying at the home of a, a man in Mississippi uh, for two or three days, doing some conference work there, I believe. And at night, he said to me, uh, well, my wife and I always have a time of prayer before we go to bed. He said, will you join us? And I said, oh, sure. So we all got down on our knees. And that man began to pray. I mean, it was amazing. His prayer just circled the globe. I mean, he remembered specific needs in specific countries and specific groups of Christians. And it was, it was beautiful. You felt, you felt a union with the, with the entire universal church, actually, as he prayed. I mean, 
we, are, we can be so compartmentalized. We can be so self-centered today, can't we? And particularly when, when we're young. Uh, self-centeredness is not exactly the number one asset of, of teenagers, for example. Uh, teenagers have wonderful gifts and they, they've got wonderful zeal and all kinds of wonderful attributes. But how many teenagers, how many of you teenagers have been praying earnestly for the Christians in Afghanistan. This tremendous need where some of them are being beheaded and killed and can't get out of that country. They're living, cowering in their homes. Can't even worship together. Has that bothered you? Has that burdened you? How much time have you spent praying for them? You see, these are the kinds of things Burgess would model in his own congregational prayer but also talk to his congregation about in preaching. So, Burgess felt strongly about this theme of unity, not just uh, teaching his people with hermeneutical clarity, but with a zeal inflamed by God's Word, inflamed by John 17, that Jesus wants us to be one with the worldwide church. So that's what excites me about your your new name, Abide, and your vision to, to um, reach out to other groups around the nation. Who knows? Maybe 10 years from now, you'll, you'll have to uh, have, a little, have a little subtitle to your name, International Abide. And, and, you, and, you, and you can do this all over the world. Why not? All over the English-speaking world. And then maybe someday in other languages as well. Who can tell? It's wonderful when ministries expand like that. It gets to be unity all around the world. Um, I started a little hobby 20, uh, 27 years ago called Reformation Heritage Books. Started out with uh, eight books. And I just feel strongly about getting good books in the hands of people. Well, it grew and grew and grew. And then I got some really good people around me to, to work on it. And, and, and all the credit goes to them, of course. And to, now today we just... We just bought a brand new building in Grand Rapids, a 44,000 square foot building, and we're sending out millions of dollars worth of books all around the world uh, every year. And I get to go to conferences and people will walk up to me every conference. Thank you so much for the, this book you published. That did me so much good in this area of my life. Thank you so, so much for that book. Uh, published by that author. Uh, just really spoke to me. Thank you so much for Reformation Heritage. You know, I never dreamed of that when we started. But there's something about Christian truth that brings Christians together. So whatever you gifts you have, whatever you can do, spread the word. It's part of worldwide evangelization. Seeking unity, Christian unity, through truth. So, Burgess said, to highlight the various methods we ought to employ to magnify church unity, we also need to treat the subject of disunity in the church and when it is necessary. But the overriding goal, the positive goal, is of course to promote church unity. Burgess writes this, The church of God has always been on fire. And as when a house is on fire, some call for water, some for ladders, some to pull down the whole house, 
So some have cried for more moderate means and some for more extreme and vehement means. So he's saying, don't destroy the whole house if you don't have to. But have a balance here where you don't just accept everybody without questioning as if you can build a false unity. You can't build real unity where there's no unity. But also don't, don't destroy things that don't need to be destroyed. So Burgess concludes here. In this prayer of Christ for believers, our Savior prays four times for unity. He's referring to John 17. This demonstrates an exceedingly ardent love and desire our Savior has for it. Every expression seems to rise higher than the previous one. First he prays that they may be one, then that they may be one in us, then that they may be one even as we are one, and then that they may be perfect in being one. So this is the true and sound exposition, Burgess writes, to reduce all doctrinal points and all controversial points into practical and experiential points, which is the life of the soul, and to meet one another in that practical experiential area. Now what does he mean by that? Well, I'll just give you the example again of Baptists. I'm a paedo-Baptist. I have a lot of Baptist friends around the world. How do I find unity with them? Well, I don't talk a whole lot with them about infant baptism. <laughs> but what I do is I talk about practical things. You know, how, how do you fight temptation? And I find out that experientially in their lives, they're very much the same place I'm at, struggle with the same things, and we can be a hand and a foot to one another. So let's follow... Burgess's lifelong call to make church unity not only a matter of truth, it's got to be that, of course, but also a matter of practice and experience. All right, that's point one. Point two, what then are the marks of true unity that Burgess presents to us? I'm going to um, summarize everything he says. I'm going to bring it down into four, four points. He says a lot more, but I think I get the gist of it here. Point number one, he says, is you have to recognize that there are various levels of unity. Various levels of a unity. unity. So, if you're united on all the essentials of the Christian faith, you see, you can have some level of unity. But on less essential issues, you see, you maybe have to settle for not having unity but you can still have an overarching unity. Now, when you have that situation, again, the Baptist is a, is a really good example, you recognize that there can be some interdenominational fellowship and unity uh, that can be expressed in certain settings. For example, at a conference like this, you can, you can bring Baptists and Pado baptists together, no problem. You can talk, you can have conference questions, and you can, have, uh, you can even have some dialogue, perhaps, about the different views without parting ways, without getting angry, or without saying, you know what, you're not a Christian. 
because you realize that as important as the covenantal views are, this is not an essential matter of the faith that reflects whether you're saved or not saved. So this level, this conference level of unity, you see, can be practiced with respect to a brother or a sister's spiritual life without even knowing sometimes precisely the contours of, of that person's denominational affiliation. But you find unity on all the major issues. So that's what Burgess does. He said there's a certain level of unity that comes from agreeing on major issues and just leaving minor issues aside. Now, it's different, of course, to become one denomination. I don't think my elders and deacons would say, well, let's join with the Baptists and become one federation. Let everyone decide whether they want to baptize their children, yes or no. That just won't work in a church body. It causes confusion. There is actually one denomination in America that does that. And time and time again, they've run into great confusion. One pastor is a paedo-baptist. The next pastor in denomination is not. And so if one is not a paedo-baptist, he's got to call another minister to come and over and preach for him on a Sunday morning so he can baptize a child in the congregation whose parents are paedo-baptists. And it's just mass confusion and often hard disagreements and Maybe it can go well for a while with with great maturity, but it's not very workable. So that's what Burgess is saying. There are different levels that we can be united in, but sometimes there's things that keep apart Christians at a very high level, like the high level of denominational unity or congregational unity. Now, Secondly, Burgess talks a lot about judicious treatment of all non-essentials. So, on the one side, he's uncompromising on essential matters of the faith. On the other side, he's quick to promote judicious treatment of all non-essentials. So he writes, for example, um, So far as people agree with us in the fundamentals, let them retain peace and concord. It's God's mercy that the Reformed churches, though differing in many opinions, yet do not dissent in fundamentals. But the Reformed in general keep the same foundation, though some are purer churches than others. Now it is a special preservative of charity to embrace one another with hearty affections when this is the case. So, Burgess distinguishes between what he calls temporary doubt and heretical opposition to the truth. He explains it this way. Okay, sometimes you have some differences, but they're rather insignificant, so you can have some real unity. Other times, there's a few more differences, and you have some doubt, like if you can have too much real unity. It's kind of like another category, but you still strive to be heretical, strive for unity, because they're not any real essentials where you differ. And then other times, there are some real essentials where you differ, and you actually have to say, well, we can't be united in any way because that group or that body or that individual embraces heretical truths that are 
foundational uh, to the Bible. Uh, so you need to recognize these different levels of unity and judge them with wisdom. And he says you need humility to do that and clarity so that you don't um, break up uh, good kinds of unity, but also so that you don't embrace false kinds of unity. So that's point two. Point three, Burgess says, when essentials are involved, there, can, there, there will inevitably be division. Essentials, if you differ on them, there will inevitably be division. Paul writes to the Corinthians, there is, must also be heresies among you that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Now, Burgess says that where there are essential differences, you, you, you're not mean and you don't yell, but what you do is you, you dialogue and then when you conclude there are essential differences, you have an ironical agreement to part ways because you believe that the one group is not speaking according to the Word of God in very essential truths. For example, my denomination would have no fellowship with a denomination that doesn't believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's pretty germane, wouldn't you think, to the Christian faith, 1 Corinthians 15. So we would, we would part ways. But Burgess says, even in that, good can come out of it. Because as you seek to dialogue with other Christians, self-professed Christians, you see, it sharpens your own theological thinking. Think of all the battles lately in the last 20 years over justification by faith alone. There's been about 25 books written, sound books, from our side of the debate, written on this issue. Never has the church in all of church history, not even the time of Reformation, produced so much good material of what it means to be justified by faith alone. Uh, same thing with the doctrine of the inerrancy of the Bible back in the 1970s. All the debates with that. There are so many good books written on the inerrancy of Scripture. So good can come out of these debates uh, Burgess is saying, even in the time of the Reformation, all the polemics going back and forth between Protestants and Roman Catholics actually strengthened the hand of both sides because the, the Roman Catholics were getting very sloppy in their living and they, they kind of straightened up a bit when the, when the Reformers came and, and, and showed them their hypocrisy. And they went to town to defend their, their system of man is saved by both grace and works. At the same time, because of all the polemical writings by the Roman Catholics, the reform got sharper and sharper in their theology and began to define their positions more carefully. And actually it was a blessing for, for the reformers and the Puritans uh, in expounding truth, their debates with, with Rome. So, when it comes to matters such as substitutionary atonement, well... Burgess says we have to cling to it with unyielding tenacity. When it comes to doctrines about who Christ is, two, two natures in one person, or the Trinity, co-equal, co-eternal, we have to unite with unyielding tenacity. 
And so, true unity, based on the truth of our triune God and who He is, must be fought without any compromise whatsoever. Burgess says, Christ does not pray for every kind of unity. He wants them to imitate the most absolute and complete unity, the unity of the Father and of the Son. Then he makes this remarkable expression. He does not pray that they may be united, but that they may be one, and that they may be one according to the highest example of all unity, the Father and the Son. And then too, Burgess says, true unity is Christological. That is, we have Christ as our reconciling mediator. Christ is the original unifier of the church. In Christ, you see, the unifying head of the body, believers find their ultimate, essential unity. They all love the Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. And our indwelling strength as genuine Christians and the cause of our unification lies in this oneness in Christ. And that's, that's really a beautiful thing. Let me give you a real quick example of this. Um, when you go to conferences in different parts of the world, one of the greatest joys is you meet Christians who don't even speak your language. You've got to speak through translators, right? But you can meet them, and 10 minutes later, you can be one in Christ as you hear their conversion stories. It's phenomenal. It, there's nothing like it. So one time we went to New Zealand and uh, happily there they spoke English so there's no, no, no language barrier. And uh, we weren't even out of the airport yet. And I asked uh, the man who was in charge of the church where I was going to, to preach, his name was Evangelist Groon, uh, how he was converted. And he told me this wonderful story. He said he was so in bitter hatred against God He had some afflictions in his young life. Hated God so much. Grew up in the Netherlands. And finally he said, I'm going to get as far away from this God as possible. Absolutely as far away as possible. So he said, I took a globe in my hands and I put my finger on the Netherlands and then I put my finger on the opposite side. I said, that's where I'm going. Turned the globe over, it was New Zealand. And he said... I don't know any. Oh, yeah, I do know one person in New Zealand. So he called him up. He said, I'm coming to New Zealand. Will you pick me up at the airport? The guy said, yes. And uh, so this atheist was going to go and, and, and befriend his atheist friend in New Zealand and live an atheist life, right? So he gets to the airport in New Zealand, he tells me. His friend picks him up. And before they're out of the same airport where he's telling me the same story, his friend looks at him and says, oh, by the way, I haven't told you that I've become a Christian. Do you know Jesus Christ? (laughs) He said, God's amazing. And that that man actually was used by God to lead lead him to Christ. And then he became a pastor and established a church there. And 10 years later, here I am coming to preach in his church. You know, this... I just felt bonded to this man right away, you see. The Christian bonds of love and unity are amazing, not just denominationally, but individually, individually. You know you've passed from death to life, says John, if you love the brethren. There's a bond between the people of God that is inexpressible. All right, 
Major point number three, remedies. How do you achieve unity? Well, Protestants in Burgess's day were, uh, were being accused of causing division by their break from a so-called Roman Catholic uniformity and their reliance on Scripture alone as the standard and the rule of all faith. They were also being accused of perpetuating division by offering no remedy for it. And uh, Burgess said, that's our weakness. We have to break from Rome. Rome is too corrupt, both in lifestyle and too far off in doctrine. And Rome has a fundamental problem because they say they believe in the authority of the Bible, but they also believe in ongoing supernatural revelation through the authority of the Pope. So if the Pope says something, ex-cathedra from his papal chair, it's infallible. So if the Pope says, for example, as he did for the first time in 1840-something, that the Virgin Mary never sinned. And the Bible says she obviously sinned because she said, this is my Lord, the Savior. You, You don't have a Savior if you've never sinned. Both can't be right. So in the Roman Catholic Church system, of course, what happens is that the Roman Catholic says, well, I must be misinterpreting the Bible then because the Pope, when he speaks ex-cathedral, makes his papal pronouncement, he's, he's infallible. So the authority, the Reformers reasoned, even though the Pope says the authority of the Word and his own authority is just one continuing equal authority, pragmatically, the superior authority is always resting on the Pope because he's the one that gets to interpret it and make the papal statements that are infallible. And they said, we simply cannot live with that. There is no ongoing supernatural revelation. The canon is closed. John said, he who adds to this word, God said in in, in Revelation, he who adds to these words or subtracts from these words, let him be anathema. And therefore, the Roman Catholic Church, they taught, of course, was the Antichrist. Because it was going directly against what Christ had said. Well, that's that's a whole other debate. But um, I won't get into that right now. But you see, what is the remedy then for this disunity and the whole idea of unity? Well, Burgess goes on to say this. There are false remedies and there are true remedies. He mentions just two false remedies. The first false remedy often goes by the name of legalism or rigid fundamentalism in, in today's vernacular. And Burgess speaks of these things in no uncertain terms. He said the first false remedy is a rigid, imperious, tyrannical, commanding uniformity and approbation in every tiny detail so that there's no dissent or liberty allowed in any area. Uh, You you all know Christians like that, right? There's a debate that was going on in the 18th century in Scotland and uh, there's a small difference between two very godly men uh, George Whitfield being one of them, and uh, he was trying to persuade, persuade the Scottish dissenters that he could, he should be able to preach in the Church of Scotland as well, and uh, and they they were against him even preaching there because they were so opposed to that denomination, and uh, so men on the other side started offering some objections and. And Whitfield said, well, but that's not an essential of the faith. And the one man jumped up and he shouted, every pin in the tabernacle is essential. 
you know, Woodfield just kind of stood there like, wow, what do you do with that? Um, you, you see, if every pin in the tabernacle is essential, well, there's not hardly one Christian who's going to agree with any other Christian on every tiny, tiny little detail uh, of interpretation of the Scriptures. So, Burgess says this is a false way of imposing unity because really it just imposes disunity. And the second form of false unity is similar to what we find in modern-day ecumenical movements, just the opposite, where doctrinal fuzziness rules the day, where anything can go. Uh, we have battles with that in the evangelical theological society today. Some, some guys embracing crazy viewpoints on things that really aren't biblical. You're, when you sign a membership, you sign that you believe the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God. But there are all kinds of ways that certain people try to wiggle their way out of that subscription and still sign. And Burgess is saying, no, no, no. You've got to be clear in your speaking. You've got to have fundamental truths down on paper. And real unity only comes when you agree on substance, not on fuzziness. There's no real unity there. All right, so positively then, what's the scriptural answer here for for positive remedies for unity? Here we go. I'll, I'll do this quickly. First, Burgess says, we must stress that unity should be established, cherished, and prayed for among leaders. Established, cherished, and prayed for among leaders. If the leaders of the church are at each other's throats, if they allow personality differences or pride to promote disagreements, uh, that, those are re- not real reasons for not having unity. They, they, they can do so much to destroy the church. Burgess writes this, It should make us blush and be ashamed to see the contentions and differences that exist between ministers that are not essential. Did the Father and the Son ever show such discord between themselves? Why should ministers on earth show such discord between themselves? You see, he's arguing from what Jesus is saying. Father, you and I are one, and so we want believers to be one even as we are one. So ministers especially, but also church people, should stop bringing false divisive things between them generated by stupid things like personality differences or pride or just selfishness. We ought to give each other the benefit of the doubt in the non-essentials. We ought to show a judgment of charity. Second, from a unified ministerial body should come a unified gospel message in the churches. So ministers need to be very careful, Burgess says. Even if they're thinking through certain areas, if they're not sure that that will promote unity and they're thinking of something rather innovative, they shouldn't just go out in the pulpit and blurt out things that will cause division. They need to be very sure of their exegesis. They need to be very careful. And uh, they should be talking to other ministers if they're going to bring out something that's kind of new in the Christian faith because chances are it may not be 
right. And they need iron to sharp iron before they bring it out publicly and cause problems in the churches. So they should, they should aim to be unified in their gospel messages. This is one of the advantages of ministerial conferences where ministers can talk together in an informal way about their differences and seek to become more and more united. And then third, Burgess says, one of the greatest remedies in promoting unity is to fairly represent opposing viewpoints. It's so easy, it's so easy to take someone from another group who believes something different and accent just what they believe in one area and forget to accent all the areas where they actually believe very much like you do. Or to exaggerate or to minimize. You know, we do that so often in conversation as well. Even the tone of our voice. Oh, she said, I don't like you. When really she said, you know, sometimes I feel like I don't like you and it bothers me. And she really wanted to talk. What a difference. See, you can, you can make people, you can take bits and grains of truth and make people sound very different than they really did. And that's abominable, Burgess says, in God's sight. If you disagree with a Lutheran or a Methodist or a Roman Catholic, you better make sure you understand their view and represent it fairly. I'm leaving behind right now uh, my legacy of systematic theology teaching for the last 30 years in, in, in four fat volumes. And I'm in the middle of volume four together with my, my teacher's assistant. There's many, many places in those volumes we have to deal with people who disagree with the Reformed faith. So what do we do? We try to represent them fairly. We don't bash them in print, but we, we state how they differ and we, in the footnotes, we have to include their names and the books. But we, we use their books to represent their opinions. And if it's something that's fairly debatable, something that we could possibly maybe have gotten wrong in any way, we do something rather surprising. Most people don't expect this. But we send it to them in the mail. And we say, or email, and we say, we're about to publish this book and we've, we've referenced you, dear brother, in footnote number 42, that this represents your viewpoint. And is this fair? Is there something you would change? Do we represent you rightly? It's amazing. We've done this dozens of times. It's amazing. Theologians write back and say, thank you so much for just, just wanting to be fair in writing us before you went into print. And, and several times they've, they've made little corrections that we, 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 and every single time we've taken them over. Okay, we understand that now. We understand your viewpoint better and we'll modify that. And one time, I won't go, you, you probably have known the guy's name so I'm not going to mention the name here. One time we sent a letter of this nature and the man wrote back and said, the theologian wrote back and he said, you know what? He said, you have every right to put this in exactly the way you did because this is in my writings. But I want you to know that I've actually changed my view on that. And I no longer believe that. So you have every right to keep it there because I'm in print saying that. But it doesn't fairly represent who I am now. 
And we wrote back and we said, okay, we'll drop it. Uh, if this isn't your view now. And we did. And he wrote back and he said, I am just amazed at your irenicism that you wanted, you really want peace. Thank you so very, very much. You see, and that, that's the kind of thing Burgess is saying here. Don't misrepresent people and don't, don't want to stick it to people, but represent them fairly. And then, fourth, another remedy, Burgess says, is there are times you need to leave a church because of heretical opinions that have come in through the leadership. And you need to leave a church peacefully. You don't leave a church creating a, a train wreck or creating all kinds of havoc in the background and disturbing the church and, and, and writing letters to everybody in the church. And don't leave the church until you can really be persuaded based on the Word of God that God is leaving the church. So be careful. Be careful. But there can be times that you need to leave a church quietly, humbly. You need to explain to the elders in a letter, in a visit, why you need to leave. But don't wreak havoc uh, in that church. That's not your calling. Burgess says, do not unchurch a church until God unchurches it. All right. Today, of course, people leave churches on all kinds of flimsy grounds. Oh, I think, you know, I think I like that preacher over there a little better. I think I, uh, I think I, um, I like the social atmosphere over there a little bit better. It's abominable. When you join a church, you join a body of believers, for better or for worse. And uh, you're called to help shepherd in that church, to evangelize in that church. To reach out and fellowship in that church. You belong to a family. You don't leave your family easily. All right, so these are Burgess's thoughts. Finally, attraction of true unity. Preservation of unity is not an end in itself. So I want to conclude by pointing out that church unity is wonderfully unique. There's, an, a, there's a compelling, attractive force about church unity, about people being united in the most holy faith. And there's an unattractive dimension when Christians are, are, are engaging in war against each other, especially a minute, minute points of doctrine. I find it very unhealthy, actually, on the internet today, where one seminary in some small point, a couple of theologians are battling it out with a couple other theologians from another seminary, and they go back and forth. What must the world think when they see all this garbage and strong language uh, going back and forth on non-essentials? It makes the church look very divisive. This is not our calling. If, if, if I have a need to write or to speak to another professor from another seminary to correct him on something. Actually, personally, you know what I do? I never write him. I call him. If you want someone to lovingly criticize you, the best way to do it is to call him and your feedback back and forth. Written forms, and God forbid, email, is the worst way to criticize someone. It makes a person feel lousy. It makes them feel defensive. So have some common sense this is the kind of thing Burgess is saying all throughout his book. Have some common sense. Be fair. Approach a person in the right way.
All right. Church unity, therefore, is a divine magnet, Burgess said, for the unbeliever. That's what John is saying. The world needs to see, or Jesus saying in John 17 prayer, the world needs to see the unity among believers. It's the minister's glory and the church's glory, Burgess writes, if the minister and the church and the people walk together in lovely harmony, because it also impacts the world. And where love abounds, there the Holy Spirit abounds. So true unity is a compelling channel of God's glory. So the union with Christ we saw last night, where that union with Christ is there in the membership of the church, you see, that church then ought to be united in Christ. Which leads me to this conclusion, personal conclusion for you. Are you laboring for church unity yourself? Do you recognize these marks, these remedies, these attractions in your own life? Are you following Christ in this prayer? Well, Christ Burgess concludes his book with these two thoughts as I conclude this address. He says, follow Christ in this prayer. Give the great God of heaven no rest by prayer till he has given rest to his church and to its guides. Cry out to Christ, as the disciples did, to rebuke the winds and the tempests, for the ship we are in is sinking. In other words, where there's unbiblical disunity, the church is sinking like a ship, and it's self-destructing. And then Burgess says, and that's the second closing thought, he's raising the stakes here, and he's leaving us no other option. He says, then we must take it all in prayer to God. He says this, let the sum of all be, as much as in us lies, to put this prayer of Christ into practice. Peace is so great a matter that it is called the peace of God, and God is called the God of peace, and Christ is called our peace, seeing Christ prays for it. We see that it is not all the sermons or all the ironic books that can do any good till God gives us one heart. Be importunate, therefore, with God and strive with Him for this unspeakable mercy of Christian unity. Let's pray. Great God of heaven, we thank Thee so much for the unity of Thy people in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help thy children not to be their own worst enemies and find small, minute points on which to disagree and so promote disunity when there is essential unity. But do help Christians to be able to discuss non-essentials constructively and lovingly without judging one another and always seeking to bring their views in a line alignment with Holy Scripture. And give more genuine experiential unity with Jesus Christ, from out of which all church unity ultimately flows. So help us to love Christ in sincerity, and out of that love to love one another, and to seek each other's best welfare through biblical truth and sound doctrine. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.